From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hey there, hi there, ho there, and welcome to episode 201 of the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian, Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my co-host, executive producer, and good friend, Craig Williams. Craig, how are you today? I'm doing fantastic. How are you, Michael? I'm doing well. We are getting ready for something You know, we've read about it in history books here in Northern California. You may have heard of it. It's called rain. (laughs) (laughs) I I had no idea where you were going with that one. And uh, I... You got me off guard. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We actually had rain the other night, and it was just so delightful. And right before the show, I was pulling in you know, the umbrellas that are on the front patio and bringing in all the cushions and everything. And so we are um, bracing for a week of rain. It's very exciting. No, I mean, I love the rain. Is I just, I wish it would actually happen more in Florida. And I know that's insane to say because everyone sits out there and thinks that it's just constantly raining and every day it rains <laughs> for just a little bit in Florida but we're actually going through a uh, we're going through a little bit of a a mini drought right now so um it's the the lake levels are starting to go back down and and my grass is dying very quickly. <laughs> but, oh my gosh. Well, yeah. You should live in California. But <laughs> well, we had a couple couple days in a row where the temperatures were in the mid 60s or below at night. So, slept with the windows open a couple nights. It was wonderful. Mhm. Well, when I woke up this morning, it was in the mid 40s. I am jealous. <laughs> so. Anyway, well, after closing due to the pandemic, the Walt Disney Family Museum in San Francisco's historic Presidio was reopened and is welcoming guests to learn about the life and legacy of Walt Disney. Also open is a spectacular new exhibition titled The Walt Disney Studio and World War II, which chronicles the story of how Walt Disney and his staff supported the war effort. We are delighted to welcome the curator of this exhibition, Kent Ramsey, to tell us about this period in Disney history that a lot of Disney fans may not know a tremendous amount about. And Kent will also tell us what this exhibition offers and why you should come to San Francisco to see it. So, Kent, welcome to Connecting with Walt. It's great to be here, and thanks for promoting our unique exhibition. 
Absolutely. Well, you know, like I said, fans of Disney history, fans of Walt, fans of the Nine Old Men, fans of animation, and seeing that storyboard art and things that normally we don't get a chance to see is all on exhibit there in this exhibition. And that's why I'm so excited about it. Why I'm excited that you're here to share the story of this exhibition and this period in Disney history with our Connecting with Walt family. So, Kent, how did you become interested in this period in the life of Walt Disney and his studio? Well, that's an easy one. The war years are a rarely covered period of Disney's history, and few people realize that the studios dedicated over 90% of its wartime output to producing educational, entertainment, training, and propaganda films, as well as insignia designs and print media. As a studio, they made a significant contribution to winning the war. And to me, this is a very important story to tell. I agree. Absolutely. And um, what led you to become involved with the Walt Disney Family Museum, becoming the guest curator for this exhibition on the Walt Disney Studio in World War II? <laughs> well, I'm a trustee at the Museum of Flight in Seattle, and I decided to explore an exhibition that would cover my two main passions – Disney and World War II. I uh, presented a rough exhibition framework to the Walt Disney Company during a trip to Burbank, and they supported the idea, but they uh, informed me that Walt Disney, the Walt Disney Family Museum, was also considering a World War II exhibition. I suggested that we all work together. You know, the next thing I knew, I was in San Francisco talking to the Walt Disney Family Museum Executive Director, Kirsten Komorowski about creating a, a Disney World War II exhibition. We had a few meetings and uh, Kirsten asked me if I would consider taking the role of guest curator and I uh, naturally accepted the invitation. It's been a true joy working with Kirsten and the Walt Disney Family Museum staff. Oh, that's wonderful. And for those of us who don't know like how a museum operates, what are the roles and responsibilities of a curator for an exhibition of this type that has so many facets to it, it's not just a typical exhibition where there's a bunch of oil paintings hanging on the wall. There is so much multimedia, different types of artwork, film, all kinds of things as part of this exhibition. So as curator, what goes into putting on an exhibition of this type? Uh, the first thing I would say is it takes many years, <laughs> but uh, my primary responsibilities as curator were to develop a specific, specific outline for what the exhibition would cover and then secure enough related objects to tell a compelling story. Uh, my efforts were successful primarily due to my dedicated Walt Disney Family Museum teammates, Marina Villar Delgado. She's, it was the, she's the director of exhibitions and collections, and Caitlin Bickle, is, who's the uh, exhibitions manager. We were blessed with having too many objects to choose from. We started without, with over 900 objects and whittled it down to 550. The uh, rare objects came from private collectors, the Walt Disney Family Museum, the Walt Disney Animation Research Library, the Walt Disney Archives, the Walt Disney Photo Library, the Walt Disney Family Library, and the Museum of Flight. Yeah. And if our listeners, if you've ever been to like the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio, they have a wonderful museum. They have a, and you think, oh, well, I've been there and I've seen the ex exhibit they have on well, in World War II, okay, that is nothing. I mean, that that's a drop in the bucket compared 
to this exhibition. So don't think you've seen everything, if that's all you've seen on Walt Disney and World War II. So, um, so can you take us back to the Walt Disney Studio on December 6th, 1941? What was life like at the studio on that day? And then how did it all change on December 8th, 1941? <laughs> oh, boy, that's a tough one. Um, on December 6th, I'd say that Disney employees were comfortably situated in their new Kim Weber design campus in Burbank. But the Walt Disney Studios were strapped for cash. The uh, distribution of American films to foreign countries was cut off due to the war, and as a result, uh, Pinocchio and Fantasia were box office financial failures. Dumbo premiered in October of 41, and it was one of the studio's shortest feature films, but Dumbo's innocent, playful personality won hearts across the country, and it was a small box office success. Then Walt Disney was at home on Sunday, December 7th, 1941, when he heard about the attack on Pearl Harbor from a radio broadcast. Shortly after that, Walt received a call from the studio's manager informing him that the Army's moving in on us. The studio's manager told the Army that he would have to inform Walt, and the Army's reply was, call him, but we're coming in, we're moving in anyway. (laughs) Walt openly welcomed the 500-man anti-aircraft battalion that moved onto the studio's lot the next day to protect the nearby Lockheed Aircraft Corporation and manufacturing plant. The troops stationed some of their anti-aircraft equipment in Disney's large sound studio, and the ammunition was stored in what was formerly an employee parking area. Walt also received a contract from the U.S. Navy for 20 training films on December 8th. Yeah, and I think even um, one of the commanding officers actually took up residence, basically, in the inner office of Walt's office. That is correct, and he was a professor from the University of Washington, and uh, I think um, Walt had a very difficult time extracting him from his his nice quarters. (laughs) (laughs) Well. Well, in the in the first days and weeks of the military takeover of the Walt Disney Studio, what actions did Walt and Roy take to switch the studio from creating just entertainment films to supporting the war effort? Good question. Walt early on recognized that government contracts would help keep his workers fully employed during a war. And in April of uh, 1941, Eight months before Pearl Harbor, he hosted a conference for aircraft manufacturers as well as government leaders at his new campus in Burbank. The uh, conference focused on the use of animation outside of the entertainment role, and the meeting resulted in several in, in U.S. governments. The conference also resulted in a Navy contract for 20 training films on aircraft and warship identification that I previously mentioned. The studios produced over 200 training films during the war, and the transition from entertainment to government work meant that quantity became more important than quality. Film production, this is a great fact, film production jumped tenfold from a pre-war average of 30,000 feet per year to 300,000 feet per year in 1943. That's remarkable. Plus, didn't Walt have less staff because so many of his uh, animators, artists, and all that, they they went to fight the wars or were, you know, used by the um, w- War Department in other areas. 
Yes, that's correct. The first motion picture unit, a uh, good example is Frank Thomas went over there. And it meant that uh, women step up, and I'm going to talk about that in a few minutes. Yeah, yeah. We'll get into how a lot of doors were open for other members of the staff during this time. Now, listeners connecting with Walt, when they go to this exhibition, are going to be thrilled with the unique artwork and memorabilia that's on display in the exhibition, much of which has never been previously on display. And I'd like to explore some of the topics that you cover in the exhibition, and perhaps you can tell our listeners about a few of the unique items that they can see. And it's fairly well known to our listeners that the government contracted with the Walt Disney Studio to create training and educational films, as you mentioned, to, which helped Walt keep the studio afloat and his staff employed. How do you tell the story of these films in the exhibition? We were fortunate to have many art and film examples from private collectors as well as the Walt Disney Family Museum and the Walt Disney Company. We used clips from actual training and educational films as well as storyboards, scale models, concept art, background paintings, cell setups, title cards, character sketches, and even an important bombsite to tell the complicated stories. It's truly remarkable that we have actual objects from the four methods of flush riveting, the U.S. Navy Jacksonville Project, Rules of the Nautical Road, the Aerology Series, and the bombing computers. Yeah, and there's so much, uh, like I said, the, the storyboard art, the, just the things that um, we just don't usually get to see that's usually you know, hidden in the archives somewhere. Yeah there, yeah, there was one section that just absolutely blew me away. There was a collector that had a number of uh, storyboard sketches from the Thatch Weave, which is a combat uh, maneuver. And I, I couldn't believe that, that, that those sketches of his drawings still existed and that somebody saved them. I absolutely love that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, another way Walt supported the war effort was to create insignias featuring Disney characters for military units. And how did this start? And what are some of the most unique insignias on display in the exhibition? Well, yeah, that's a good question. I'll go over one because there's so many that are unique. But mm -hmm. this, is a, this is a pretty long explanation. Uh, one of the earliest military insignia produced by the studios, which fe naturally featured Mickey Mouse, was for Floyd Bennett Field Air Station in New York in the early 1930s. Hank Porter led the special military insignia team during the war that produced over 1,200 insignias. Now, the story about the unique one, well, it's, it's POW Captain Robert H. Bishop, a navigator from the 67th Bomb Squadron, 45th, 44th Bomb Group, probably had the most unique insignia request of the war. His uh, B-24... Liberator native Miss Dolores was shot down over Kiel, Germany, and he became a POW at Stog Loop 3. Uh, this POW camp was made famous by two popular post war books that eventually made it to the big screen The Wooden Horse and the more famous The Great Escape. Captain uh, Bishop's insignia request was made via the Red Cross and his girlfriend. Bishop included a rudimentary sketch of an angry Donald Duck in uniform behind bars, drumming his fingers. The final insignia design is featured in the exhibition along with a nice photo of Walt holding the artwork. Uh, incidentally, the original Hank Porter pencil sketch of this design recently sold for $9,600 at auction. Oh my goodness, I have a reproduction 
of that particular insignia. And the story of it just boggles my mind that somehow someone in a POW camp through the Red Cross was able to even get a message That's to correct. Walt. No, it's it's a great story. Yeah, yeah, it's and um yeah, it is. And now why did Walt start creating insignias? Cuz they created like hundreds of them. Yeah, they they created 1200 as I said during the war and it was basically, I mean, they're the best ones set up to produce let's say graphic designs that are assigned to military units. And uh, the nice thing was that he didn't charge anybody for the designs as long as it's a military unit. And anybody from a private to a general could uh, request it, and Disney generally acted on it. Yeah. I remember in an interview when somebody asked Walt, you know, why did you do this at no cost? Um, because, it, of course, it was a cost to the studio. And Walt said, these young men and women, they supported me when I was first getting started. And they would join those Mickey Mouse clubs in the theaters. Uh, you know, every Saturday they would go and pay their nickel or whatever. And he said, they supported me. And now it's my turn to support them. Yes, and, and I would say to add to that, uh, the, the, the insignia were great morale boosters during the war. The, the men were all very proud to have them, and I'll talk about that a little bit later in, in, in my own family history. But um, it, it was just uh, when I hosted World War II, um, basically uh, reunions at the Museum of Flight for like 15 years – the big thing that they'd always talk about when all these guys, old guys would get together, they'd pull out their old insignias and they were so proud and still carried them around with them. And that was their, their one, of, one of their most favorite things to save from the war. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I would say. I remember um, there was a restaurant in San Francisco, Ghirardelli Square or the cannery like decades ago called the flying tigers and it was started by men from that unit and they still used that logo their yes. insignia yes. for that restaurant that is probably the most famous uh insignias that came out of the war as far as the flying tigers avg american volunteer group it's a great design it is it is now speaking of insignias Fans of Donald Duck will be thrilled with the logo that you created for this exhibition. And um, can you tell us the story behind the logo and describe it for us? Oh, that is, this was a total joy for me. Uh, Mike Gabriel, a Disney animator and co-director of the Rescuers Down Under, and Pocahontas created the wonderful insignia for this exhibition. I was the art director for the design. It was uh, working with. It was great working with Mike because his father was a P forty seven pilot in England, and he had a deep understanding of World War II history. I asked Mike to use Donald Duck, a consolidated PBY Catalina flying boat, and the Golden Gate Bridge in the design. And the final product is absolutely perfect. I hope you look it up on the internet. I really wanted to have a Catalina in the design because it was a frequent guest in the San Francisco Bay. During the war, and the PBY is underrepresented in most uh, World War II insignia inventory. Also, the ill-tempered master of mischief, Donald Duck, was selected because he appeared in over 200 insignia designs during the war. Yeah, and you have – I mean, this could have been nose art on an aircraft. And, yeah, and he's in his World War II gear, and he's 
hanging on to that um, plant. I'm looking at it right now. And he's hanging on to it and scared, skirting across the um, San Francisco feet, Bay. The San Francisco Bay with the Golden Gate Bridge in the background. Yeah. No, yeah. It's, and, just, it's just, I was so overjoyed when I saw the final product. Yeah, it's beautiful. And of course, there's. Um, there's opportunities to purchase it online through the museum bookstore, through the online store. And when you go to the bookstore at the museum, uh, it's on pins, it's on merchandise, it's on the cover of the wonderful catalog that we'll refer, refer back to in just a moment. So um, you can own this insignia. So, anyway, and something really unique and it was surprising to me is a story that sometimes we like to avoid. And that is the story of the World War II internment of the Japanese Americans. You included this in the exhibition. And what I learned from this is I didn't know how so many people who were Disney artists or would become Disney artists were affected by this internment. What made you decide to include this as part of the exhibition? I, uh, to me, it's it's a it's a dark chapter of American history, and it's not a, a chapter that I'm, I I or I think other people are very proud of. But I wanted to include it in the exhibition, mm-hmm. and I think due to current times and whatnot, it, it, it's fair to to you know basic, basically have uh, it represented in this World War II exhibition. And I would say that one of the primary uh, stories that I want to relate is is. Gio Fujikawa. Yes. Uh, she worked at Disney as a promotional artist, one of the first female artists hired outside of the ink and paint department. By uh, 1941, her job took her to New York to design licensed merchandise, and this allowed her to avoid being assigned to an internment camp. However, her family still lived in California, and they were forced to move to Jerome Worry Location Center in Arkansas. Now, the beautiful part of this is at one point during the war, Walt visited the merchandise offices in New York and talked to Gio. Walt said, how are you doing? And she says, I've been worried about And he says, I've been worried about you. Gio said, I'm doing okay. If people ask me what nationality I am, I tell them the truth or I give them big lies. Like I'm half Chinese, half Japanese or half Korean, part Chinese and part Japanese. He said, why do you have to do that? For Christ's sake, you're an American citizen. Next time anybody asks you that, just tell them it's none of their business. Besides, you're an American citizen. And he was right. From then on, Gio told everybody that she was an American citizen. Gio stated that Walt was very concerned about Japanese Americans that worked at the studios. Gio left Disney after the war to pursue writing and illustrating children's books. Yeah, and I think that gives us great insight into, first of all, how Walt felt about the internment, but also the compassion that he had for people, and and especially for the people on his team, on his staff, because I think he did feel a responsibility for them. Absolutely, absolutely. And that's that's why I wanted to tell this story. It's just one of the fascinating things that uh, people don't know about Walt. Mm-hmm. I, I was so happy because that story is included in the catalog, and I, I was just so happy to see that included in there. So um, I think that's terrific. Another story that you tell in the exhibition, and we've already alluded to it, is in the exhibition Walt Disney Studio in World War II, is how women who were traditionally 
only in the ink and paint department, for the most part, were able to move into other departments of the studio. Yes, uh, before the war, women's roles at the Walt Disney Studios were largely limited to the ink and paint department and secretarial work, with such notable exceptions such as color stylist Mary Blair and animator Retta Scott. Uh, Many male Disney employees enlisted in the armed forces and talented women were encouraged to step into new roles, especially as animators. When the U.S. asked women to join the workforce, most businesses intended it to be temporary, but not the Walt Disney Studios. When the war ended, women were empowered to earn their own wages and enjoy their own personal and financial freedom, which, again, is an illustration of how progressive uh, Walt was. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I know many of them moved into like the story department and um, were able to move up the ladder in terms of animation and go into other areas of the studio. So. Um, Now, in the main gallery of the Walt Disney Family Museum, there's a permanent exhibit on Walt Disney and his team's trip to South America, uh, which we all know is El Grupo. And they have a number of artifacts and artwork. In your exhibition, you've added to the story with additional artwork and photos. And how did you choose these pieces to tell the story of this trip, to sort of build upon the story that's already in the main gallery? Well, uh, yeah, yeah. First, the story is important as Disney's El Grupo played an important role in what was known as the good neighbor policy. And the program was created by the newly formed Office of the Coordinator of Inter-American Affairs. And it was designed to reduce any growing Nazi sympathy in the region and strengthen ties between the United States and the neutral republics of Central and South America. Uh, two package films, Saludos Amigos, and The Three Caballeros, and several educational and agriculture short films were created by the studios because of visits to South America. And now I would say we were quite fortunate to find a private collector who had many art pieces from the South American trip. I believe that the brilliant concept art created by color stylist Mary Blair is probably the high point of our Inter-American Affairs section of the exhibition. Absolutely. And I know uh, the day we're recording this is the anniversary of Saludos Amigos. I was reading something about it. And what someone, um, I can't recall who said, I think it was somebody from the State Department said, Walt accomplished in just a few weeks more good relations with South America than than we've been able to do in 50 years. I, I would say I, I, that's a totally true comment. And it's uh, because of his fame. Related to Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, everybody in Latin America knew who he was, and they were absolutely thrilled that you know American icon like that visited their country and and toured around and tried to learn more about their culture. So it, he he was the right person to pick and could probably have done that as a profession if if he so chose to. Oh yeah, well he got involved as you said with the people and and was expressed interest in their culture, whereas other celebrities had been sent prior to Walt by the State Department, they would go down, play a few rounds of golf and leave and not interact with anybody. And um, not Walt, though. And then when he made those two films, you know, it it was even did more for relations. But um, yeah, when he left, people loved him in those countries. So, 
Now, in episode 30 of Connecting Us Walt, we talked about the book Gremlins by Roald Dahl and the never-completed Disney film based on the book. But in the exhibition, you tell this story through some rarely seen artwork and storyboards. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and once again, I'm going <laughs> to remind everyone, gremlins are those little mythical creatures that wreak mechanical mischief on military aircraft. And RAF Flight Lieutenant Roald Dahl created Gremlins manuscript that found its way to Walt Disney's hands. Uh, the Disney Studios completed two possible scripts for a feature Gremlins film, but production ran into trouble on several fronts, and it was frustrating for me to see this happen. It was difficult to represent the mischievous Gremlins' antics and make them likable heroes. It was also well known that the other animation studios had their own Gremlins projects, and Warner Brothers was the only studio that produced two Gremlins shorts. Uh, Walt ultimately dropped the Gremlins film, but the characters, including Gremlin Gus, Fifanella, Widgets, Spangles, appeared in multiple forms of print media during the war. Also, more than 28 Gremlin insignias were designed by Disney for the military. Our exhibition has gremlins that appeared in puzzles, insignia designs, cartoon strips, books, and advertisements. The JMARV P-40 Gremlins puzzle and the nose art of a B-17 Gremlin Gus from the 560th Bomb Squadron, 388th Bomb Group, are my two favorite gremlin objects in the exhibition. Yeah, and there's a lot to see there. So folks are curious about gremlins. And, and there's some behind-the-scenes photos in there yes, uh, and, and all that. So uh, it, it's really well done. It, really and I'm, I'm nice still section. frustrated to this day that they never made a feature film. I, I would love to see it. <laughs> I know, because I really don't consider those films – were they in the 80s, those Gremlins oh, films? I yeah, really don't yeah. consider those to be no. – no. Yeah. <laughs> um, Now, although the studio was focused on creating training and educational films for the war effort – Walt also found the time and resources to create a few entertainment short films, which you do talk about and and have art for in the exhibition. Are there any that you feel really stand out, either in their story, artistry, or character development? Yes. Uh, (laughs) We cover nine entertainment shorts in the exhibition. I would have to say that Donald Duck Gets Drafted is probably my favorite short regarding story, uh, animation, and character interaction. The film is a lighthearted look at enlistment and early military life. And the title card reveals Donald Duck's Duck's middle name, Fauntleroy, for the Mm -hmm. first time. The short features fantastic recruiting posters that were designed by Carl Barks, the creator of Scrooge McDuck. And to me, I think the posters are great because they promise healthful exercise, breakfast in bed. Everybody is pals in the Army, including the picture general. You'll be surrounded by pretty hostesses, and you'll be irresistible. Join the Army Air Corps and have a girl on each arm. So it's it's kind of tongue-in-cheek, and, and Donald, of course, walks in and signs up immediately. But uh, Donald fails all phases of his physical examination and yet receives a final okay, being fit for service. His uniform is 10 times too big, but that is quickly solved by dousing him with hot water to shrink it to fit to his size. Pete is his drill sergeant, and it does not go well. Donald ends up peeling potatoes and will face off against drill sergeant Pete in many future films. Yeah, and you actually can watch it 
there uh, an exhibition yes, i watched have, it on the monitor there <laughs> yeah we have film clips and then obviously original art and backgrounds the background paintings for this film are quite quite great too mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. now you also include a gallery on the propaganda films created by the studio now what is a propaganda film and how did these differ from the educational training and entertainment films the studio created at the time yeah, and this is a, a real touchy subject because, you know, the Disney company is not a propaganda company. But um, we cover 11 propaganda films in the exhibition. All the selected films were designed to influence public opinion or behavior. Uh, some are designed to inspire citizens to purchase war bonds or pay taxes. And others are, will focus on changing public behavior to win the war. Uh, Their Fears Face won an Academy Award for Best Short Subject cartoon in 1943, and it was created to sell war bonds. Reason and Emotion is my favorite propaganda film because it illustrates why it's wise to have reason in the driver's seat in most wartime situations. The film explains that Hitler destroyed reason in Germany by preying upon emotion with fear, sympathy, pride, and hate. Rumors and the enemy propaganda appeal to emotion, which can incite panic. The end of the cartoon shows Reason as the pilot of a B-17 and Emotion as the co-pilot. And uh, this is one of my favorite short films, mm -hmm. and, it, and it's, a, it's an excellent propaganda film, and parts of it are, would be true today. Uh, Walt was, I, would, I should say also, Walt was opposed to producing propaganda films, but Secretary of Treasury Department uh, Henry Morgenthau Jr., and the U.S. ambassador to the U.K., Jacques Whitney, were ultimately successful by appealing to Walt's patriotism. And his, his propaganda films made a big, big, had a big impact. They did. And then they had other ones, too. You know, other films like, you know, encouraging people at the time to pay their income tax on time, which yes. it was not a thing then. And, and buying the war bonds, which... Uh, was just outrageously successful yes and, um, but what's funny is the song from the fear space now when Shut i up. was a young boy spike the jones war had i love it done, yes it had been gone over 20 years the war had ended over 20 years by the time i was in elementary school they were still playing the spike jones song on the radio yes That's and i, I was in the same classroom and i made me laugh every time i heard it and then, you know the first time i heard it, i didn't even know what they were talking about but i just thought it was a hysterical great mm -hmm. song it was, yeah. And I didn't know the context for it either. I just figured, okay, this is something they played during the war. And because we were all still very aware of the war, you know, because oh, yes. all of our parents had gone through it. And, um, but I didn't know until I saw De Fear's Face years later that, oh, that's where it came from. Yeah. And the film was originally going to be called, uh, I think, Donald Duck and Nutsy Land. And because of the popularity of the Spike Jones film, they renamed the the short and brilliant stroke. Mm -hmm. It was, it was. And now with the end of the war in the Pacific on September 2nd, 1945, when did the military leave the Walt Disney studio? And how long did it take the studio to recover from the military occupation? Now, that's a good question. Uh, you, you have to understand that uh, up until the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, most people thought that the war would continue well into 1946 because the invasion of Japan would be a crushing challenge. 
The unconditional surrender of Japan came quickly, but winding down the immense military-industrial complex took a long time. It was uh, several months before military personnel disappeared from the Walt Disney Studios because military discharges take time. The studios were in a shaky uh, financial condition following the war, and package films such as Make Mine Music, uh, Fun and Fancy Free, uh, Melody, Melody, Melody Time were produced because they were cheaper to create than a feature film. I would say it was not until 1950 that the studios started to hit full stride again due to the uh, phenomenal success of Cinderella. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and Walt, they threw everything they had into Cinderella. And Walt said years later, if Cinderella failed, the studio would have failed. Yes. Because they would have had nothing left. Yes, I, I would agree with that. Yeah. Now, when you were putting together the Walt Disney Studios and World War II exhibition, did you learn anything new or anything that surprised you? Oh, yeah. My uh, my favorite surprise centers around the feature film Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Now, why am I saying that? Well, I visited the Disney Animation Research Library with the expectation of seeing hundreds of cartoon cells from the war period. Uh, much to my surprise, I discovered that Judge Doom, Roger Rabbit's nemesis, had visited the studio before me. Most of the cartoon cells from that era were washed, placed in the dip to clean the transparent sheets for future use. In other words, they were recycled. The few examples that did survive were in rough shape due to the unstable chemical makeup of celluloid back then. So I did not find hundreds of cells, but I found thousands of beautiful art examples and that well made up for as far as the animation research library. Yeah, that's sad, but I know that's something that they did for the, a lot of their early artwork was lost. Yes. So, yeah. What effect did being the curator of an exhibition of this significance have on you personally? Um, yeah, this is a uh, that's that's a tough question for me. Um, this was a very emotional experience for me. Um, Earlier, I alluded to this, but Disney designed an insignia for one of my uncle's squadrons as well as one of his photo groups during the war. And our family has always taken great pride in this. Um, Regrettably, my uncle, Captain uh, John G. Austin, was shot down one month before the war ended in Europe. I had a vision in 2000 of thanking the Walt Disney family as well as the Walt Disney Company for creating the wonderful insignia designs. And this exhibition serves as my personal thanks to both parties. Um, Also, this exhibition is a salute to all the brave service personnel that sacrificed their lives during the war to preserve our freedom. So it's, like I said, this is a kind of an emotional thing for me. Yeah. And what a perfect place to have it on the grounds of the Presidio of San Francisco. Because when I was a boy, it was an active military base. Mm -hmm. I think it was active until like 1994. Yeah, yeah. So, and I, I grew up not far from there. So, uh, lucky you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, we would actually go there all the time due to my father's um, work. So, it was, uh, it was a, it, it so it, it brings back a lot of memories for me as well. But I can't think of a more perfect place no, to have it's, an it's exhibition a, like it's this. It's a beautiful setting. Mm-hmm. Because not only was the military base active in World War II, we had Treasure Island. Um, you know, in the middle of San Francisco Bay that was also active for the Navy. 
Yes, San Francisco is a naval base practically, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Now, after visiting the exhibition, what do you hope guests take away from the Walt Disney Studio in World War II? Okay, yeah. As we were uh, pulling this exhibition together, it struck me that most people don't realize that Disney devoted 90% of its production to the war effort. My hope is that museum guests will appreciate the wide range of communications that the studios employed to dramatically assist in winning the war. Their work during this period supported the country and allowed the company to diversify beyond the animated cartoons that had been the staple of the company. I would say that Walt's efforts in wartime media production contributed to his future path of dramatic creative experimentation. Mm-hmm. That, that, that's very true. Actually, and that was one of the things that Walt liked about that they had to do these educational training films and all that, that they could test new animation techniques. Yes. And, and including how to do some things more economically that they could then transfer over when they returned to entertainment films. Yes, and that's true. That's very true. And I think one of the funny stories about Walt, too, during this period is they said that the first time he got up on a camera crane when they were working on Victory Through Air Power and he became involved more in the live action film or live film that they knew that he was going to diversify. He's going to animation. Yeah, that's important. But he's going to go into live film, too, and branch into other things. And that, mm-hmm. that's a great story. Yeah. And what she did immediately after the war. He did. Yeah, yeah. So now the Walt Disney Studio and World War II exhibition is currently open Thursday through Sunday from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. with the last gallery entry at 4 p.m. Reservations are required and tickets may be purchased through the museum's website at waltdisney.org. The exhibition is free to museum members, so uh, there's a good reason to become a museum member. And to all active and retired military and their spouses and dependents with valid ID, which I just think that's terrific. And uh, more information can be found on the museum's website. Now, there's also some great exhibition merchandise, and we talked about it. There's a collector's pin and other merchandise with the Donald Duck exhibition logo we spoke about. There's a great exhibition catalog, and it has a lot of images and artwork from the galleries. It has a few of the stories. Kent shared a few of the stories um, that, that is shared in the uh, catalog and in the galleries, but there's a lot more. So Kent's just sort of given us, you know, a, a smattering of stories. Yeah, it's about it's just a little light touch, but yeah. uh, it's it's designed to encourage you to, you know, actually visit the real exhibition. Right. Well, when I, and I was also saying though that the stories you shared with us are just a, a little of what'll be found in the catalog and definitely in the gallery. Yep. So anyway, so Kent, before you go. There's just one more thing I have to ask you. Longtime oh. listeners of Connecting with Walt know that one of my favorite extinct Disney theme park attractions is the Keelboats. And Craig will testify to this. I've always said the Keelboat skippers had a better spiel than the Jungle Cruise skippers. You were a Keelboat skipper at the Magic Kingdom, I learned. So can you share any stories from your time navigating the rivers of America? 
Oh boy, I'm gonna have to change my accent if I do that. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I. One thing is, I, I never followed the script once I left the dock, <laughs> I, which I should never say, but I. That's just what I was like, and I started by saying, "Welcome aboard, pioneers, banjo pickers, chicken pluckers, in-laws, outlaws, grandmas, grandpas, and any cute girls that snuck on board when I wasn't looking." And I, I stole lines from W.C. Fields, Laurel and Hardy, uh, Groucho Marx, and even Popeye to make the journey more comical. Uh, a great example is, as you disembark, do not indiscriminately step on any small children. Just pick out the one you want and stomp them good. <laughs> <laughs> also, I opted for the keelboats over the Jungle Cruise because the keelboat did not operate on a rail. And that was a big mm -hmm. deal to me. I wanted to just operate the boat myself. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I miss the keelboats so much. They added so much to the Rivers of America. And it was just it was one of those attractions you'd find nowhere else except at Disneyland and of course and or, and Walt Disney World and of course it had that historic connection to you know the the series that ran oh, on yeah Davy yeah, Crockett that, King of the that's World that's what Country. I grew up with running around with a coonskin cap and then I yep. as an adult I was running around with a coonskin cap on and buckskin yeah. part of the time when I worked on the Indian canoes too so yeah I was uh I got to play Davy Crockett for quite a few days and the other thing about the keelboat, which most people don't understand, is you're, the operator is at the back of the boat. So you have no forward vision at all. Mm -hmm. So I had to step from side to side constantly to watch out for the riverboat, the river rafts, anything else that could be in the river. And uh, it was a really challenging boat to operate. And the tiller was massive, and it took sometimes both your hands to move the darn thing. So uh, it was an interesting boat to, to, to operate for a kid from Iowa. I'll bet. I'll bet. But I, and I don't know if this is true at the Magic Kingdom, but at Disneyland, the keelboat skippers and then the Indian war canoe uh, skipper, well, that's what they were called back then, um, they would pretend to have a rivalry or maybe they really oh, did we, have a rivalry we, we had an absolute rivalry but we were <laughs> best friends and as i said a minute ago i also worked on the indian canoes because it was just kind of fun to flip back and forth once in a while but uh yeah when i would go by the uh, indian canoe i'd empty my bilge pump out so i'd kind of blow water over towards the, <laughs> the canoe and then they'd thumb their nose at me and splash at me and we just had a great time a uh, great rivalry but just great camaraderie um very good friends that's great well i i know you made many happy memories for a lot of guests as a keelboat skipper and i have many fond memories of the keelboats so well kent thank you so much for joining us on connecting with walt to share the stories of the walt disney studio and world war ii and thank you for putting together this marvelous exhibition and this is a must not just for disney fans but for students of world war ii and as you mentioned kent for those who want to remember those who sacrificed so much to defend freedom and liberty so thank you and um why i hope um well, I hope that you'll be curating another exhibition so you can come back on the show again. Or if you just want to come back and tell more stories about your days at the Magic Kingdom. <laughs> yes, I could probably do that. that but thanks for hosting me tonight, and this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much. 
Now it's time for me to ask Craig to check out This Week in Disney History. All right, we are at the week of October 24th. Lots going on over at Walt Disney World this week in history. So, Craig, on October 24th, what was officially dedicated at Walt Disney World on October 24th, 1982? Um, I, I think it was actually Epcot. Correct, Epcot Center in those days. That's right. <laughs> True. <laughs> Disney's third theme park was officially dedicated at 11 a.m. by Disney chairman E. Carden Walker, 23 days after the park's opening. Nearly 10,000 special guests are in attendance, including Walt Disney Productions executive Don Tatum, Mrs. Lillian Disney, Walt Disney's widow, corporate executives, foreign and American political figures, and many VIPs. There were also... um some of Walt's grandchildren were there as well for this. Okay, very good. <laughs> mm-hmm, it was. All right. On October 25th, what was officially dedicated to Walt Disney World on October 25th in 1971? I am assuming that, w- that was the dedication <laughs> of Walt Disney World. I do know that because everyone has been specifically Magic Kingdom. Everyone has been after the this sad, sad opening of October 1st, you know, 2021, uh, only having the opening stage show. Everyone's like, okay, well, maybe maybe they'll do something on the 25th, since that was when it actually was dedicated way back when. I, I don't think anything's happening on the 25th. Now, if they give out buttons that day, Craig, you have to get me one. <laughs> I don't I, care if you have to wrestle a cast member to the ground. <laughs> uh, Michael, I will make my park pass as soon as we're done recording, just for Magic okay, Kingdom, so. just in case. Uh, let's pause right now, and you just go ahead and do that. <laughs> yeah, the formal dedication of Walt Disney World took place with Walt's brother, Royal Disney officiating. Now, the park has been open since October 1st. Standing alongside Royal Disney during the dedication in Town Square is Mickey Mouse, portrayed by cast member Doug Parks. A grand opening parade down Main Street, USA, featuring a 1,076-piece band led by music man Meredith Wilson, the composer of 76 trombones, kicks off at 2 p.m. All right, I see you a couple of softballs, so here, here's, a, here's one for okay. you. October 26th. Socialite, philanthropist, and activist Margaret Tobin Brown passed away in New York City at age 65 on October 26, 1932, posthumously known as the unsinkable Molly Brown. She was a passenger on the RMS Titanic's doomed 1912 voyage. She helped others board the lifeboats, but was finally persuaded to leave the ship in lifeboat number six. Miss Brown was later called the unsinkable Molly Brown by authors because she helped in the ship's evacuation, taking an oar herself in her lifeboat and urging that the lifeboat go back and save more people. What is her Disney connection? I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, it is also the name of Molly Brown is the name of the little boat that runs around the river in Disneyland 
uh, park in Disneyland Paris. That is very good. Yeah, the riverboat at Disneyland Paris, which runs on the rivers of the far west, is named the Molly Brown. Yeah, I didn't get to ride it when I was there, but uh, I was the friends that I was with. I asked them, I was like, is is that the riverboat? Like, yeah, it's like, that's it's an interesting size for a riverboat. Because mm-hmm. it's not, not as glamorous as, as ours over here. No, but it was cute. I liked it. I didn't get a chance to ride it either. When I can remember, I'll have to do that next time. Yeah. I think because I asked somebody if they if it was like Disneyland's, if they had anything on the riverbanks, and they said no. And I think that's why I didn't. Yep. Yeah. So. I mean, when you're only there for a short time, you yeah. don't want to take up that much time just going around in a circle for nothing. <laughs> yeah. Okay, on October 27th, 2001, the Orlando Sentinel reported the reason why the Walt Disney Resort has emptied powdered soap dispensers at its four theme parks and installed new ones containing liquid hand cleaner. What was the reason? I don't remember. Okay, as a security measure against a terrorist attack using anthrax. That was a big fear at the time. I remember the anthrax scares, but I do not remember them <laughs> switching out the soap because of anthrax. That yeah, I miss I miss that soap so much. Do you really? Oh, the yeah the the powdered soap. I loved oh, it. I always thought it was awful. Oh, I I liked it. I I liked the texture and then how it just it felt like. It was able to clean my hands better, and after it was gone from Disney World, didn't come upon it again until I worked in a warehouse one summer, and we had that there because you know hands get greasy and mm-hmm. such. So it was a lot more efficient at actually cleaning your hands. Yeah, it reminded me of Boraxo mm-hmm. soap that was around when I was a boy that I think everybody had in their garage or something like that that you used for just that reason. Yep. Okay. October 28th. Why did Carrie, C-A-R-Y, J Sharp 37 of Baton Rouge, Louisiana, attend his own midnight burial at Disneyland on October 28th, 2004? I have no idea. The ceremony was held so Jay could become an honorary resident of Disneyland's Haunted Mansion attraction. The doctor and healthcare attorney, Sharp, paid $37,400 on eBay to become immortalized on a Haunted Mansion tombstone, the first member of the public ever to do so. His tombstone reads, Jay, doctor, lawyer, legal clerk, forever buried in his work. Mm-hmm. All the... That was very clever. All the proceeds from the auction went to both the Anaheim and Baton Rouge chapters of the Boys and Girls Clubs of America. And it was in, for a period of time, it was in a visible location as you exited the cemetery. And its I've been told that it was moved to where it's more in the shadows when you exit the cemetery. So it's not quite as visible, supposedly, but that it's supposed to still be there. Yeah, I don't I don't remember that story if we've ever talked about it before. I have never seen <laughs> that that uh that that grave marker and uh 
uh, yeah, I I would feel bad if I spent that much money. You couldn't even see it. Very well. yeah. Well, I think it was there for like a year or something. I mean, there, there was a time frame that it was there, but then it got moved. If you're a doctor, but I remember when all this was going on. Yeah. Yeah, you you probably have disposable income that you can. Thirty seven thousand was probably nothing to them. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you wouldn't pay that much to have your own tombstone. Oh, uh, you know, I'd only have to sell my house. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't see myself doing that. No. What What if it would have been like a, a car named after you on test track when uh, you were working there? No, there's there is <laughs> nothing, nothing that could ever get me to spend that much money. <laughs> okay october 29th tim burton's animated the nightmare before christmas debuted in u.s theaters on october 29th 1993 why was it released under the touchstone pictures banner rather than the walt disney studio banner Um, i think it it probably was because uh it was (sighs) I want to say because it might have been PG, but I don't think, I think just overall it didn't really fit in with Disney in general. Yeah. Yeah. You're on the right track. Studio executives believe the film might be, quote, too dark and scary for kids, unquote. And of course, he's probably one of the most popular characters for children. Yeah. I was going to (laughs) say, I, I don't agree with it. And, you know, I was... I was only six years old when it came out and saw it in theaters, and I never found it to be too dark or scary. So, my I, I my granddaughter, when she was like four, I think she watched it because when we took her to um, we took her to Disneyland's Halloween party. Oh my gosh, we had to see Jack, and, and we every year we had yeah. to see him. And um, I mean, that, <laughs> also Jack and in- Sally, we had to see. Yeah, I was going to say, too, also in my case, though, in terms of dark and scary, uh, 93 is also the year that Jurassic Park came out, and I saw that. (laughs) And so maybe after that, for a a six-year-old, there wasn't that much, you know, Mm -hmm. a a musical (laughs) that takes place in Halloween Town wasn't really as terrifying as watching a bunch of people get eaten by dinosaurs. Oh, yeah, you never looked at your... Plastic dinosaurs the same way yeah. again, huh? Yeah, I think <laughs> I think that might have had a big impact on me. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, the little boy next door, I think he watched he watched it. I remember them talking about it because he got a Lego set. There's a Jurassic Park Lego set, yeah. and so his parents watched the film with him so that he would sort of know what this Lego set was about. It's perfect. I think he was five. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, the 90s. <laughs> yeah. Okay, October 30th. Walt Disney's fourth Silly Symphony cartoon was released on October 30th, 1929, and was Ub Iwerks' directorial debut. What is the name of this short? It's been a long time since we've talked about Silly Symphonies. I'm, I'm not pulling anything out of my hat well, on this one. Well, the date. Date could be a clue. It was Hell's Bells which features the devils of hell gathering together for a uh, mad frolic with music by Carl Stalling. I forgot about that one. Yeah, and boy, <laughs> you thought Nightmare Before Christmas was scary for kids. Right. Hell's <laughs> Bells, th- that for 1929, that that was pretty intense. 
So it's, I still say, you know, it's probably intense for some people even today. <laughs> mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, I did pretty well. Well, you know, with, uh, with, um, what Veterans Day, I think coming up in just a couple of weeks, this was a nice, um, interview to, ha- to have this week to market. It, it really was. Um, I, you know, I thought it was a wonderful conversation and it just still makes me so jealous that, you know, I, I can't get out to the museum to actually see it considering how much, how much I love war history as well as Disney together. I really mm-hmm. wish I could get out there for it. We're just a plane ride away. You, just you are just four, a plane right away. Sounds, just four and a half hours or so. I just, I apparently am the only person on the Diz who doesn't get a vacation. So. <laughs> <laughs> it would seem that way. Yeah, so. I would love one. <laughs> and then you could just, it's a short hop down to Disneyland. Yeah, I can't. <laughs> I can't even get down there. So I, I figured, I figured after Disneyland reopened that I'd already be there two or three times before the end of the year and still haven't seen Avengers Campus. I haven't, I mean, I haven't been there in general. So I'm sitting here watching all these new Marvel characters popping up, seeing zombie Captain America pop over there for Oogie Boogie Bash. And I just, I want to get out West. Yeah. I'm going in December. So hopefully I'll get to see all that. I, I hope they keep zombie Captain America around for you in December. Nothing more. Yeah, more I have a feeling they won't. Maybe, <laughs> maybe it'll be Santa Claus, Captain America. <laughs> Her elf, Captain America. <laughs> As of this recording, my granddaughter was visiting today. We talked a little about this before the show. Um, I, uh, she came over, and you know, we we went out to lunch and did things, and then we started on a project. I had bought, so I bought a couple of Lego sets for like when she came over, and I've had this Lego set forever, the Steamboat Willie Lego set, and I thought, oh, you know, this would be fun to put together in an afternoon. I've never seen a Lego set. They didn't have them when I was a boy. They you just had red and white Legos, and you just used your imagination. And even when my son was little, well, he had my Lego sets and then the Lego set from a friend and they were just a collection of blocks. And I don't think they had, they had these pre-built sets, preconceived sets yet because he never had any. And so that was the last time I touched a Lego. So we opened this thing up. Oh my gosh. I couldn't believe how long it takes. Well, first of all, thank goodness for the app. And, um, but I think in three hours we got through maybe half of it. And, um, and I was exhausted. So, and I thought, I think some of it is needlessly complicated. Like there were times that I thought, okay, why are you using four little bricks here when you could use one long one? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that happens a lot. And uh, it just be grateful with uh, that set. If I remember correctly, uh, there's no stickers involved with it. There are, no. there are sets where it will be so frustrating because you will be putting these tiny little stickers on and you can never get it completely straight or, or in the perfect position. And then the next piece you'll pull out was a piece that had something printed on top of it. So it's like, well, 
why did we need the stickers? If you have the ability to print these, why didn't you just print them <laughs> as well, too? And, and I know it's because if, you know, the piece doesn't, if a piece gets left out, it's a lot easier to send a sticker in that piece than it is to print, custom print one. But, oh, it, Michael, they it gets into, like, big headache territory with Lego sets. I'll bet. Well, I don't know how many. Well, I have the Cinderella Castle one in my closet. I told her when she's here for a few days, well, we might start that one. Yeah. <laughs> so, and I thought, okay, if this little Steamboat Willie thing is this much work. Um, yeah, I, I don't have the castle set. It's just, it's one that I, I've seen it, obviously, at the Lego store. I've seen it in uh, a friend's house as well, too. And I know it's just too tall. It's too... It's too big for any space that I I have for it. So between the price and the size, it's just it's not on it's not on my radar. But it's I'm sure it would be a heck of a lot of fun to put it together. Just where do you find the room for more plastic? No doubt, no <laughs> doubt. Oh, I know, I know. So um, yeah, so at some point we'll finish this. Thing. Although I enjoyed it, I thought oh, you know Legos are fun. I'd forgotten how much Man. fun they were. It, it, this set's really cool too because when uh, once it's all finished and stuff, when you push the boat, uh, the the smokestacks will go up and down as well. Yeah, too. we've been having fun with um, seeing how all the little gears and all that work, and then would roll it as we put a little more together and see how you yeah. know they work a little better yeah. and all that. So um, yeah, so we're looking forward to that. So, oh, good luck. Thank you. Thank you. I think we'll need it. Although she was pretty good with it. They also have a Lego tool where if you put blocks together that shouldn't be together, you can pry them apart. In my day, our Lego tool for that was our teeth. Yeah. Uh, my best <laughs> is like, okay, if I have to pull some pieces off of each other, you know, I'll let my nails grow for an extra week and then I'll be able to dig out <laughs> under there. There were a couple of times I had to use scissors to yeah. sort of pry them apart. But, yeah. But that little Lego tool is nice. It works most of the time. <laughs> yeah. It didn't work all the time. Yeah. Well, you know, Craig, speaking of Lego, I bit the bullet when I was last out there at Walt Disney World. I got the Disney Lego train station set. Mm-hmm. And um, they, they had... Three on the shelf, and they said last chance at the Lego store out there. And then when I went back in a couple of days later, because I was looking for the miniature castle, because I thought that'd be a nice gift for the little boy next door for Christmas and for my granddaughter. And it, that that train station was gone. They had something else last chance on the shelf there. So, but you know, they're talking about mail, all the mail shipping issues. Getting it here was terrible. I think it arrived in Sacramento on October 4th. I just received it two days ago. I'm surprised it even already made it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, I thought, okay, I got to ship early and order things early, like they're saying. Yeah, it's uh, if you're not ready to do your holiday shopping right now, then you're probably going to miss out on doing it. Um, yeah, really. I've got to start thinking about it. So, oh, and we have an update to one of the listener memories 
from last week. Remember that we talked? Oh no, it was, um, no, it was this week in Disney history. Remember that we talked about Pop Century Resort and that 57 Chevy Pop Century golf cart? Yeah. Yeah. And we wondered, is it still there? Well, uh, a listener, a fan of Connecting with Walt, Scott, wrote me to let me know that the 57 Chevy Pop Century golf cart that was used to take Dick Clark for a tour of the resort is still there and can be seen at the entrance to the main building. And he sent a photo of it. So, I mean, I've probably just walked past it every single time and not really paid attention to it. Well, I figure I must have walked past it because I've stayed at the Pop Century. Yeah. So, yeah. So, thank you, Scott, for sending that in. And and he also sent a photo of when you and I met him. Oh, very nice. Yeah. Yeah, that was nice. So, I think it was at one of the uh, D23 events or something. So, um Anyway, but yeah, so thank you, Scott, for sending that in and confirming that for us. So, Greg, until next time, how can our listeners connect with you? Well, you can find me on all of the different uh, Disunplugged podcasts that I'm a part of on our Disunplugged podcast network. Uh, But you can also always reach out to me on social media at Teleclaster, and then you can find me uh, via email. I mean, you can email me, not not just find me, but you can email me craig at wdwinfo.com. What about you, Michael? Well, you can send me messages at michael at wdwinfo.com. Twitter, I'm at mbowling121. Facebook, I'm michaelbowling-connectingwithwalt. Instagram, I'm michaelbowlingthediz. And you can connect with me and Craig on Twitter at connectingwalt. If you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes on the link Craig includes in our show notes or at DisneyPlug.com. Look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, Pandora, and Amazon Podcasts, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings when possible. And next week is our Halloween episode, and I think uh, you'll really enjoy it, especially if you are a Haunted Mansion fan. And not just the Muppets Haunted Mansion, but the (laughs) Haunted Mansion in general. Yeah. So thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. (laughs) 